Hello, this is Tony Lloyd. Being a broadcaster for many years, I have witnessed some great stories in the music industry, and now I want to bring as many music stories to you as I can in this series of podcasts. My goal is this will inspire and maybe help up-and-coming musicians and maybe some experienced ones too. Music Stories with Tony Lloyd. Peter Howarth, welcome to Music Stories. How nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's great. Here, still here. You're still there. (laughs) Still going strong. Now, um, I'm not going strong, but I'm still here. (laughs) I've done um, a little bit of uh, research on you, not a lot, Um, and it, it seems that you've had quite an inspirational musical life. So. Let's start uh, at the beginning, if you can think uh, back to when it, it all started, really, uh, for you in the music uh, business. Uh, you were probably too young to be in the music business when you started playing the guitar, weren't you? I started playing the guitar very, very uh, young. Before we go any further, sorry, sorry about this, but is your voice coming through? I could put the headphones on if it's easier. No, I've got a perfect signal. You got perfect. Sorry. So let's go. Where were we? Oh yeah. When did it start for me? I played, started playing guitar uh, around about the age of seven. I think I was when I started playing guitar. That's when, that's when I had my first instrument, but music's always been um, a part of my life. I can't think of any, any point in my life where uh, it hasn't, hasn't been there, but certainly in the formative years, and I can go back as far as my earliest memories where, uh, it was a very potent force in my life. Who gave you that guitar? Whose fault is it? <laughs> Didn't give me a guitar. I had to, I had to do little hop jobs for it to prove myself as though uh, I'm not worthy of it, but that it wasn't a fad. You know, uh, there were my mum and dad were very concerned about me just having a fad for a guitar and and then just getting on and not really using it. So I had to sort of prove my desire, which I did. And uh, my father bought me this dreadful guitar with wire strings that it was like cheese wires and it was a very painful process uh, to play and he got me lessons he, he wouldn't buy the guitar unless i had lessons so i had lessons as well with that mm, yeah fantastic okay um so then what happened i mean you were you were at school and playing the guitar and um you left school and were you in a band at that point at school um, I did have a little band at school, That not until I was about 14. I mean, honestly, th- I could go on for about the next 15 hours about this. So I've got to try and make it concise, really. Um, 14, I left classical guitar because I was, I was into, obviously, lots of different kinds of music at that time. And I remember uh, buying or getting electric guitar. And then the, fir- the first instance of me playing a guitar ever and playing a chord of an E minor was was like a moment you play E minor and then you play E and you get this change from major to minor which I was completely blown away with that difference of uh, emotional content with those two things that pleased me so much of, of, of those two chords and the next big moment uh, of, of being hit with that kind of thing was um, having a, a Fender Telecaster which I, I don't know how I got the money for that I must have been I don't know where I can't remember. I'm, my 
parents must have must have got it me i don't know uh of electric guitar I, might be, I don't know how i got that but i got a vox ac 30 top cart that was cheap at the time they were very very cheap now you, you pay thousands for them it was a vox mm. ac 30 top cut with a separate head and i remember plugging this guitar in the, the telecaster turning it up full because in the garage because that was the only place i could play it and hitting this chord and the sound of a telecaster wound up mm. through a a Vox AC30 full is something that I'll, I'll never forget that. that and that was way. it. And you then, were hooked. Oh, and then I had friends come around and we used to plug both in, both guitars in, you know, uh, mates at school that, that came around and we had a little bit of a jam and played Smoke on the Water and stuff like that, you know. Everybody plays Smoke on the Water. <laughs> well, yeah, but at the time it was hip. It was cool. It was, it was when it came out. It wasn't like now you're not allowed to play it. It was like nobody else was playing it because they probably haven't heard it. But, you know, it was, it was new. That's it was groovy. Fantastic. Okay, um, so what happened next? You know, say ten years later, what were you doing then? Ten years from that, was cut from say fourteen to twenty-four. By that time, um, cut. Long story short, I started playing around uh, in bands at school, and I wanted to be a professional musician. That was the idea, just to be a, a professional musician. Because in Blackpool, there was lots of musicians at that time. Blackpool was a wash with uh, theatres and live music. And um, I couldn't think of any way better to, to earn a living than, than playing music. So I sort of gravitated towards getting a job with it, you know. So I ended up playing in this hotel band when I was about, oh, 16 and a half, wow. playing in this kind of function band. It was a the St. Ives Hotel in St. Anne's. And we were doing functions leading up to Christmas. So it's like Christmas parties every night. Yeah. So there'd be, it was quite a big party. So everybody was getting drunk and uh, we'd play like a bit of dinner music, then obviously rock and roll stuff at the end of the night. But it was, um, that was my first experience of playing guitar in a band. And, uh, and I started singing a bit. And then after that, I wanted to play in a, in a band that was, wasn't playing function music. I wanted to play in a, an original band and I joined an original band in, in Preston called Spiral Axis. And it was like a funk rock kind of outfit. Um, and then I ended up playing when I was 21, I went ended up playing Depping for two weeks on a musical Joseph and the amazing technical, the dream coat, um, playing guitar in the pit. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was going to, I was going to do it for a week while my friend had sort of could find somebody else. I don't really fancy it. Uh, within two weeks, uh, I was on tour and ended up um, being very attracted to one of the dancers there, <laughs> female dancers, of course. And um, as you do, yes, and I um, ended up touring uh, for a year with with Joseph, and that's where uh, that my, that's my wife. That's where I met my wife. That was nineteen. 82? Was she was she one of the attractive dancers? By any she channel? was the attractive dancer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she was the attractive dancer that I was very allured to, and uh, <laughs> we we had a wonderful time for a year touring and having a real old laugh. Really, it was brilliant. Mm. And then after that, I joined a band in London because um, the drummer in that time in the pit was a friend of mine called Gordon Marshall, who he he played with the Moody Blues for the last thirty years. Um, he's left now, but he, he, he was a very good friend of mine and he decided 
one week he just decided, right, I'm going to London. And he was on a really good money. He was going down to London to make his fortune. So off he toddled in this battered marina that was falling to pieces. It was just rust. Well, they were, weren't they, marinas? They was just <laughs> held together with bits of string and, and glue. And he put all his drum kit, I'll never forget, he put all his drum kit and we just waved him off. It was like the Theatre Royal in Nottingham. And we had another drummer coming in that week. And he just disappeared into London. And then about four weeks later, he phoned me up and he said, oh, I'm in this band. He said, they want a singer. Because at that time I was playing guitar, mainly, but I did sing. He said, they want a singer. Why don't you come down and join the band? And I thought, I've got, a, I've got a really good job. I've got really good money here. You know, I've just bought a new car, which was a Lancia Gamma Coupe, which I really, really loved. And I was, it was, I was still pay, paying for it. I thought, <laughs> oh, and I remember phoning my dad. And my dad said to me, he said, hey, what, blood? He said, I said, I'll, I'll, I've just been off this thing in London to go down and play for this band. I said, there's no money, but it's, you know, it's, my mate's Gordon's gone. And he said, well, he said, you know, he said, you've got no responsibilities. Lad. He said, if, you, if you're not going to do it now, you're never going to do it. Mm, mm. And it really made me think, I thought, yeah, you're right. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. I'll be here, you know, playing music in pits or whatever for the rest of my life. I'll, I'll really regret not going. So I sort of thought, right. And so I packed the job in. Um, and I remember coming down to London and I stayed with my mother-in-law for a night, I think two nights. And then I went to join Gordon. He had this terrible flat in somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, he was, she was sharing, he was living with somebody else. And we ended up saying, we need to get a flat. And we got a flat together. We became like the odd couple for about seven years. We lived in this dreadful flat in West Norwood. It was, it was dreadful, but it was fun. And we had a lot of, lot of laughs. And we had a, a, we had a few, went through a few bands. There was The Scheme and there was different ones, but we were always in, in a band together and we had Sahara and that. We did have a deal of, we had a manager and we got a deal. We did, a, we did an album that was recorded with Nigel, Nigel uh, Wright. No, no, not Nigel Wright. He, he produced The Police. Anyway, I can't remember what his name is now, but it was at some studio. And that all fell to pieces. And then from there, because that was 24, 25, I ended up doing a lot of sessions in London through uh, meet. It's like you do, you, you end up in places, you meet people, uh, and one thing leads to another. And I remember the band coming to an end. Sahara, it was, we were nearly killing each other at one point because we got so far, we couldn't get any further. Oh. And um, I remember getting this phone call from the uh, band's manager's, our band's manager's secretary, and she said to me, uh, oh, um, can you can you sing uh, Give Me Some Loving? Uh, I said, what, the Stevie Winwood thing? She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I can sing that. She said, well, look, they're looking for somebody to sing it for a, a lemon tea at PG Lemon Tea. They've tried lots of different singers. She booked sing session singers for uh, Je Jeff Wayne's show. He had a company, Je Je the guy who did War the Worlds. He had a jingle yeah. company, or like a, and, he, and she used to book singers for, for that. Oh, oh, yes, I remember. And you could do that. So hmm. I said, well, what, what is it? And I had no idea what it entailed. She said, well, just turn up at this studio in, I think it was in near Camden. And I went up there, not knowing what to expect, really. I thought I had to sing the whole song, you know. So I went in there and I'm in a, a recording studio and there's about six people behind the recording desk. And it was quite scary, really. And they said, they just said, all right, Pete, um, uh, give me some loving. I said, yeah, yeah. And they played me the track. It was very short. It was just like a, a, a quick verse and a bit of the chorus. And I went, yeah, that's it. He said, did, did it sound all right in the cans? I said, yeah, it sounds fine. And I said, we'll sing it. And I just sang it. And they went, thank you very much. 
that's that's good. And that, I suppose, is that it? <laughs> that, yes, thank you, Pete. That's 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 good. Thank you very much. So I came out of there and I, I walked out into the street. It was the experience lasted about ten minutes. And um, bearing in mind, I haven't earned a penny for the last seven years working in rock bands. You know, my mum used to send me food parcels and all all kinds of stuff. And working a few little bands in London to make a few quid to pay the bills. And oh. um, I used to work in this Irish band in where was it? That was in Camden, oh. the forum in Kentish Town. It's a massive Irish band. Oh. So I used to make a few big play in the Irish band there and then rehearse with the with the original band during the day and and, and trying to get a deal. But anyway, uh, this all that came to an end and did the session. And I remember uh, getting a cheque through the post and it was from about, I don't know, 140 quid or something, 150 quid. Wow. And I thought, wow. What, what's that? And oh. I remember, what's that? What's that? What's that? That's the fee for the session. Great, that's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. I thought that's easy peasy lemon squeezy. And then about six weeks later, I got uh, and I was living in this horrible flat in Crockerton Road by that time in in Tooting, the one the smallest flat known to man. And I got this check through the door that came from, I think it came from like Sarchi's or something like that. And I thought, what the hell's this? And it was quite a substantial amount of money, <laughs> money that I hadn't seen for a long time. And I thought, I remember phoning up Christian. What the hell is this? She said, oh, it's your repeat fees. I went, what? She said, well, you get repeat fees. It's on television. I said, what do you mean it's on television? So the advert's on television. And it's like, you know, at that time, there's only three, three, three was ITV and Channel 4. Mm. And it was on all the country. And you get paid by regions where the jingle goes out. If it goes out in Scotland, if it gets played, you get a certain amount of TVRs and it builds up. And it, if it goes on and on, you can make quite a lot of money on it. <laughs> and I remember, th- I said, what, you get paid for, for repeats? And she said, yeah. And that started me doing uh, jingles for quite a while, about mm. four, four or five years. There was a, I, I was coming at the end of things. That was the heyday of jingles. And mm. I missed it, really. I came in at the end, uh, mm. really. And the sort of repeat phenomenon sort of finished about 91, 92. And I started about... Mm. 86, 87. So I had a few years of tasting the good life of jingles, but then yeah. I don't. Th- I think they refused to start paying repeat fees, and then it all collapsed. And by that time, I was uh, was I think I met Rick Fenn by that time, who was my became a writing partner of mine. And that's that's another long story. I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> Maybe we I should mean, do several of these. Talk, you know, we could split yeah, them I mean, in segments. We ended up writing, um, <laughs> we're writing musicals. We ended up writing a musical for, for Bill Kenwright, which was the ch- chap who put on Joseph. I met Bill when I was um, playing guitar in Joseph and I've known him a long time. And he's an amazing character, amazing, amazing character and a lovely chap. And uh, I ended up writing a musical for him with Rick. Fantastic. Long story. And can you can you write and read music? Um, I I can read music. I, I used to be able to sight read when I was a guitarist, but I think my, my sight reading skills are not great now. But I'd, I'd be able to work it out, but I wouldn't be able to. I used to be able to. I was playing in these bands like the Mecca bands when I was about. 18, 17, and dance orchestras where you'll get a pad of about 800 numbers and they'll shout out number 153 and you, you open up, you start playing. I, I did that for a bit and I was dreadful and then I got better at it and uh, you, you do. Uh, but now I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't score music like uh, I've had known a couple of people, a couple of great people that can just think, well, I need to write a string quartet and they just get a piece of paper and they'll just mm. write it off. Or if they listen to a piece of music, they think, oh yeah, that's like Demon, they can write it all out as they hear it. No, I haven't got that. But a lot, a lot, of, a lot of successful, very successful musicians can't read or write music. 
I mean, I, I don't think Elton That's true. Elton one, one John. of the best guitarists that I've ever worked with, uh, one of the best players that I've ever worked with. He, he, he can read a chord chart, but he wasn't, he, even that was a bit of a hassle for him, mm. you know, but wow, what a player. I mean, there's, I've never played with anybody like that, you know, but it's, it's how you, ha- there's no, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to learn music. You, you follow your nose and you see where it leads you. And um, some people become very obsessive about certain things and they develop a style that is all unique to their own. You could be schooled with the best teachers in the world for five years and you still wouldn't have anything special. There's, there's no rule. So if you go with this teacher, you're going to become the best guitarist in the world. You know, mm. you could go to Berkeley and, uh, I don't know, you could study under the best teachers and have a statue erected for you because they think you're the best people that's ever to come out of Berkeley, but you still might not get any work for the next 10 years. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. That's the reality. Okay. Tell me, tell me about your, your backing uh, singer um, career. <laughs> oh, gracious. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I that came from, again, I think it was doing the session thing and, you're, I was at a party somewhere and uh, it was Sonia Morgan who who was the girl who sang Life of Brian. <laughs> Sonia sang the Life of Brian, the title track. Sonia is, a, is, again, a force of nature and she was a, she's a great singer. And I was at a party at Sonia's house and Sonia was talking to me about singing and what have you. And I didn't know she was the singer of Life of Brian at the time. Uh, but she said to me, oh, what, what kind of singing do you do? I said, well, at the moment I'm singing in a kind of rock band. She said, well, you've got quite a high rocky voice. I said, yeah, I suppose it is kind of high and rocky. She said, oh, well, go, they're looking for booth singers uh, at the musical time. They want depths, you know, would you be up for that? And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, you know. So I ended up going down to the booth, meeting other session singers, ended up doing doing that for about a year, really. And it was obviously Cliff was there, and I, I did meet him a couple of times. And then when he went off on tour after doing time, he took the booth singers with him. Oh. Not me originally. It was he took uh, Mick Mullins, Keith Morell, and Rosie Rosie Poundford at the time, who was uh, well the scores and the doors. She worked with Brucey for a while after Rosie, um, and they went on tour. And then Keith Morell got a call for Mama's Boys. He was in the band Mama's Boys. They wanted him, and he disappeared off and tour with Mama's Boys. And then Mick gave me a call and said, "Look, can you fill in?" Uh, on this tour for Cliff because um, Keith's doing the Mama's Boys. So I ended up doing one tour and then one tour turned into like 23 years <laughs> of doing backing vocals for Cliff, which I always seemed to, I mean, it wasn't all the time. I was, uh, the first few years it was intense. We used to do like tour for nine months because he was massive at that time, Cliff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but then, I ended up doing sessions around that and writing, and I was that, that was my main sort of stay. That I mean, Cliff, bless his heart, was it was the, that kind of gig at that time uh, helped me to settle down, sort of get a house, and um, mm. because it's very hard as a musician to get that sort of regular income to to. <laughs> If you get to persuade a bank to lend you some money to buy a house with. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that what what, what, what do you done. do? Occupation, musician. Okay, next. <laughs> next, yeah. Well, even now, you know, you try and get insurance for your car. You know, you bring up direct mm. now. Oh, yeah. Fantastic oh, yeah. Deals. What do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a singer. Oh, sorry, we don't need you. It was sort of the same as being a DJ, um, you know, on the road and everything else. Insurance was yeah. a nightmare. Well, you didn't in the end. You just, if it got smashed up, you just had to replace it yourself. Um <laughs> Cliff, I've met Cliff and he's one of the nicest people I've ever spoken to. He's a lovely guy. Is that your opinion too? 
Of course, yeah. I yeah. mean, I worked with the man for that's a long time, uh, probably longer than I should have really. But let's um, say that again with with affection because it was always uh, we had a great bunch of guys uh, in the band. You know, there's nine nine. I can't remember the nine or ten of us. There was nine of us, uh, and we all got on really well. Like a it's like a it's like a big family. I mean, I, you know, these guys I worked with on and off for twenty years, and we go on the road and we would have a really, really nice time. It was a nice way mm. to make some money. So why would you say mm. no to that? You know, unless you've got yeah. something else pressing. The other thing is that sometimes um, necessity becomes a mother of invention. If I'd have got the, if I didn't, if that wasn't available to me, then you'd have to go and find something else. But it was always there. It was always, you know, you'd come home for about four months and then the phone, you'd say, well, you want to go to Australia in January for, you know, two or three months and, with a bunch of your mates, you think, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> yes, I do want to do that again. Yeah, of course. And that's the way it was. But yeah, as a chap, I never saw him lose his temper. I've said this before many times. In all that time, I've never saw him lose his temper with anybody or have a crossword at anybody, you know. Mm. Um, Lovely guy. And he was always fun to be around as, as, he, as, he, as he is, you know, as yeah. a chap. All right, let's leap to 2004 because okay. then you got a call, didn't you? I did get a call as these things happen. Um, at the time, again, I, I, I was wallowing in this kind of, uh, lots of things go on at that time, but I got a call from, I don't know who called me first. I think it was Tony Hicks called me, called me first. Uh, and he just said to me, I've been given your name. Uh, would you be interested in uh, singing with the Hollies? And funnily enough, I think it was about three years previous, uh, I had a call from uh, Ian Parker, who was the keyboard player with the Hollies. Now, I didn't remember this, but Ian Parker actually played with the band Sahara. We, we tried a keyboard player. Just one night it was at the somewhere in the, in the Rock Garden, I think it was. We did a gig at the Rock Garden and we were a guitar band and we decided to try keyboards one night. And the keyboard player, who was a friend of the bass player, was Ian Parker. And he came down and played for one night and I didn't see him again. But... Fortunately, Ian remembered me. This is years later, 20, how many, 20 years later. And when they, I think when Alan left, Alan Clark left, Ian phoned me up and said, would I be interested? He said, I think your voice would really suit the Hollies. And I said, well, I can't. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing uh, Roy Oberson for Bill. I was in the middle of doing um, Roy Oberson for Bill in the West End or on tour. But I committed to um, a tour for Bill. And I said, I can't, I can't pull out. I said, no way, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. Uh, just go off, you know, somebody comes along with a better offer, you don't just go, oh, well, I'm mm. I'm off now, see you. But I don't anyway. Mm. You know, I committed to do... Some would uh, have, some would have. <laughs> yeah, but I I, I I, know, I don't, especially Bill, for me, was um, somebody that I, I would never, never let down, leaving the lurch. And um, I just said, no, I can't do that. So if it ever comes up again, you know, let me know. And I think that's what happened. Mm. It came up again and um, I spoke to Tony and then, we, we we said let's meet up on I don't know if it was a Tuesday or something like that in a hotel in Liverpool. We went into this downstairs, like a like a private lounge downstairs in this hotel in um, near Sloan, no, not Sloan Square, near Oxford Street, just back of John Lewis. And um, he he had acoustic guitar and there was Bobby there, uh, and he he just played. He said sing he ain't heavy, so I sang he ain't heavy. Uh, and what, what he, actually, when he started it, when he started here, I remember him playing the introductory chords, and uh, he 
I started, it was like, I said, what key? Because it was the, the, the road. I said, it's really low. I said, what key are you doing it in? He said, well, it's in whatever. I said, no, well, that's not the key. He said, no, we don't do it in the original key. I said, well, can you do it in the original key, please? Because I'm really struggling. So we did it in the original key. And he went, oh, yeah, that sounds great. You know, and then we sang, I think, Long Cool Woman and Air That I Breathe. Those are the three that I knew. Um, and then he said, right, he said, you're on on Friday. And there was a gig in Germany in front of like, I don't know, it's about 8,000 people in Germany. Uh, this One of these big stadium gigs that a few bands go on. And I had a 35-minute set to learn. And um, yeah, that, that the rest is kind of history, really. To me, you are the voice of the Hollies. Really? It's, it's like you've always been there. I know you've been there for, what, nearly 20 years or something. I have, and but- that's very kind of you to say, but... I'm very aware of um, the shoes that I fill. And it's not whether I think Alan's the best singer in the world or or whatever. I I think at the time, Alan's voice was very, very meshed with that, with that other Hollies. You know, it was Mm. very, his sound was, it's like listening to Paul Rogers in Free or, and then whatever vocalist you're going to replace, it's not a case of who's the best, you know, because people say, oh, and I got a lot of stick with, and I'm sure Carl got a lot of stick when you take over. Oh, he's rubbish. He sounds like, oh, he sounds pants. He sounds like Cliff Richard. He sounds like this. He sounds like that. You get a lot of abuse. You get a lot of abuse. Okay. Uh, but I can understand it because singing is very personal to people. And if you know those songs, you know those songs, and you've got Alan singing in your head, it's not going to, I'm never going to replace that. Mm. I think even Alan now, if Alan was to go on stage now and sing, if he, if he had my face and he used to go and sing, they wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't <laughs> accept it because it's never as good as the record. No. Um, it, it, you, it, there's no way. And I knew I could never compete with that. All I could do was go on and do the best I possibly could mm. and not sing the songs like change them around in the sense that, uh, you know, you can get your people when they sing like uh, sort of solely kind of versions of and they change all the phrasing around. And mm. you, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. For me, just get on there, sing it in tune and, make, and have Alan's, I always have Alan's voice in my, in my, in my ear, if you like, mm. uh, because, well, I think, I think you've got to try and keep to the original kind of yeah. vibe. To respect, like the, to respect the original. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And but, but there again, you know, people, I think once they go to see a band, you know, if they're really big fans of Alan, they're not going to come see the Hollies because they're only, they're only interested in Alan Clark. And that is fine. Mm. That is absolutely fine. But there's also a lot of other people in the band, like Tony and Bob. And mm. there's also the great songs. Now, if you're a fan of the songs, mm. or if you're a fan of Tony's guitar playing or Bobby's drumming, or the general sound of the harmonies, it might be easier for you to, easier for you to swallow. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do go on, and if people come, when they first came, you're new, they sit and judge you, they go, oh, yeah, he's all right. Uh, yeah, he's okay. And then the, the next year comes along, and they thought, should I go and see him again? Yeah, he was all right. Let's, we, we like the songs, and they go back again. And eventually, after about five years, <laughs> then people stop slagging you off. The people that come are just people that have seen you before. They've had a great time at the gig. And you've got your own kind of life. You've got your own stamp on it. But you can never, ever replace the, right. the original um, but you know so- um, that's sort of the nature of the business uh, isn't it where <clears throat> band members change quite uh, quite dramatically <laughs> quite they sometimes. do they do but and there's, there's been situations where I think you know you can have a band go out and there isn't one original member left yeah. for people <laughs> yeah. because a lot of people they'll see the brand name and they'll go oh let's go and see the blah 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 yeah. and they'll go there and, they, yeah. and they'll enjoy it and then and they think who's there who's there? and they say well, did you miss 
who's what Tony who, you know, or Bobby who they, they, they just want to hear the songs and uh, have a good time. Um, That's so the other extreme, of course. I know you're still singing uh, He Ain't Heavy. You did it in a church, which, which, uh, and it's on YouTube somewhere, and, and I'll find that link and put it on, on the podcast. But- oh, with the one with the lots of forgiving reverb. <laughs> <laughs> the acoustics of a church, yeah, it's free reverb. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's it was that, yeah, that was that was a, a yeah a, a rendition that I, I actually did that version of that song for. It was uh, Bill Kenwright phoned me up and he said to me his, his mother, who he he obviously was very very close to his mum, and he asked me to go uh, and sing. Would I sing? He ain't heavy at his mum's uh, funeral, and I thought. Yeah, of course, of course I would. But I had a very short time in trying to get a version of He Ain't Heavy. And I tried doing versions of He Ain't Heavy before, and it always sounded, I tried numerous things. And I know Paul Carrick did a fantastic version of it. So he did the kind of solely jazzy thing. And I thought, well, how am I going to make it different? You can't make it different. So mm-hmm. I stopped making it different. I had, but when I tried before, I tried a few different, it just wasn't happening. And I thought, well, I've got to do this. I've got to do this by tomorrow. I haven't got a time to mess around, you know. So mm-hmm. I thought, right. Let's just sing it and try and make it as as um, sincere as possible for mm. me, okay. and that's what I did. Unfortunately, I don't know how. I just haven't done any, any tuning, and it it sounded nice. Those open chords sounded nice, and I thought, yeah, I'll go with that. And I did that, and then from doing it up there, I started. I did. I have played it quite a lot, and I think that particular version was probably a couple of years later. I think when I probably just got it a little bit better. But, yeah, I'm still doing it now. Yeah, I still sing, sing that version I'm so, now. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you are. But I, I thought it was fabulous, brilliant. Well, thank um, you. Thank you very what, much. What would you say to um, somebody listening to this who's a struggling yes. musician? Um, and there's yeah. uh, most musicians are struggling. <laughs> but, they are. Yeah. But um, what would you say to them to inspire them to to keep going? Or what advice would you give them if they're a singer or um, a songwriter or a guitarist? What would you say to them? Uh, well, I don't think it's only any one one phrase. I think if you are a musician, I think if you are struggling to keep going, I mean, the thing is, I find with most musicians, um, there's nothing else you can do. I, I, I've not been able to do anything else. I've not... I've not had the opportunity to do anything else, but I've, there's nothing I've ever wanted to do. But even when I've had those moments where it has got really tough and I've thought... You know, and there's been times, you know, where, where, you know, the bills aren't getting paid and nobody, the phone isn't ringing. I mean, it's anything self-employed, you start to worry and the stress and you, but I thought, well, what, what else can I do? What else can I do? Apart from say, would you like a bag of chips with that? Or, you know, no. would you like lager or bitter or something like that? You, I haven't got any other skills. <clears throat> I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant and I have other passions, but that's my abiding passion. And it's simply, I can't let it go. It's there. It's all I can do. And I honestly believe it's almost like a a calling. It's part of who you are. And I don't think if you're struggling, you've just got to keep pushing. Just get up in the morning, put one step in and just try and survive the best way you can. I think the advice, uh, I I think it's great. The one thing, I'm trying to think of what if somebody has said to me, do this. And the, the other, the one thing I would think is, I wish I'd, if I'm, I wish I'd done anything is, is try uh, write more or, or do something more original. But that is balanced with the fact of making a living. Because if you're making a living, you have to 
it's all right writing your own songs, but if, you, if the bills aren't paying and somebody phones you up to say do a tour in Australia, you've got to think, well, do I sell the house and mm. write my own songs or do I go to Australia? And time can, can you have to follow your heart. There's, I don't think there's any one way about it. I think to survive in the business, there's a good piece of advice that doesn't matter how good you are at what you do. You could be the best guitarist, singer, drummer, in the world, you could you could know every chord, be the best jazz, but you could play anybody under the table, and you could be like, say, Steve Gadd on drums. Say Steve Gadd was coming to your audition, and, and he, he starts me think, wow, this guy's like red hot, and you think, yeah, we'll have him in the band, okay? You go out on the road for two days, and you find out he's a complete, you know, he's he's not a nice bloke to be around, okay? <laughs> It doesn't matter how good you are. You have to get on with people. We're not saying we're not, people. we're not we're not saying that Steve Gadd is a difficult person. No, no absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, I, didn't, I mean, like anybody. I'm, I'm, I remember you know applying that to his genius. I mean, as a mm. person, I'm sure he's lovely because he wouldn't have survived in this business without being. Yeah. But I think it, it applies to everybody. Whatever job you go for, do your job well. By all means, know your stuff. Nail the job. The first, the most important thing is to, you know, being a backing singer of Cliff, you go in, you nail your job. You make sure you sing in tune, you turn up on time, you don't fall over on stage drunk. You get on and you do it and you do the best. And But at the same time, you get on with everybody. You don't become a complete pain in the ass because you, you won't be in at the job very long. We had people come in, great, and after about a few days you go, what is this properly? What's going on here? Before you know, they're gone. You know, that's the thing. It's You don't have to be a virtuoso. You just have to know your stuff. Mm. You know, whatever job you're doing, do it well. You know, you don't have to play like, you know, uh, I don't know, Jacob Pastorius or whatever. You just need to be able to nail it, really. Yeah. That's great advice. Keep going. Keep going. That's the thing. Oh, yeah. If you love it, keep going. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's uh, for the future for you? Um, you're still. I notice you're still doing a few gigs and and stuff like that. About what's what's uh, lined up for you in the future now? Uh, well, after COVID, um, I knew this was kind of going to happen. Where um, there's nothing for uh, a year, for six to eighteen months. How it's going to be? Because even this tour for the Hollies that we had booked in September, October. Uh, it was cancelled from last year, put onto this year, and we found out a few weeks ago that that's been cancelled because they can't guarantee that you'd be able to fill the theatres to capacity. So, mm. um, for whatever reason, um, they, they decided to pull it. Uh, and I know that that was the first signs of life. We've had a few inquiries now for different. I've had a few inquiries for different things now of what, what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And everybody wants you to do everything all at once, but the Hollies have got a massive tour um, been talked about. They've just changed uh, management companies and um, they, that's quite a, a big management company that's now got involved. And I think really, for me, the Hollies have been around for a long time, but I've never felt that they've really um, had their moment uh, in that kind of spotlight of other bands of that era, um, probably down to not the management, probably not elevating the, the brand as it should have been, I feel. That's my personal thing. But I think this next period, which is obviously coming to the autumn, days at the Hollies because uh, they're not getting any younger. I mean, I'm not getting any younger, but certainly Tony and Bob are, are well kicking on now. <laughs> uh, but I think there's going to be a lovely final chapter. I don't know how long that chapter is going to be. I don't know, but yeah. I think they're going to 
do this tour, uh, I think starting maybe April, March, April next year, that's going to be quite extensive. Mm. Brilliant. Um, it's going to be, I think it's going to be, it's, I, I've got a feeling it's going to be a very special tour. It's, it's very, I don't know how, God willing, all, everybody's health is going to be okay. That's mm. the main thing. You know, we're all healthy. We go on and do what we do because we have a good time, but I just feel it's going to be hopefully a very fitting last chapter, if you like, mm. uh, to what is when people would, will look back at the Holy story of what, what a great story it is. Cause I don't think many people realize that, that, that Tony and Bob, although I know Alan left, they, and I've, I've said this many times, uh, and I do do so on stage, but it always blows me away that they, until COVID actually, they've toured every year since the band's inception wow. every year. That's incredible. These guys have, you know, they've, they've, they didn't need to tour. They, they got, I'm not saying the multi-billionaires, but they certainly, had, the only reason to tour for them was to do what they do because they love it um, and enjoy that thing when we're on tour and we have that camaraderie that you get. And then and the most important thing at the end of the night, when people stand up and when you go out there, they're all looking at you. And uh, even if they're applauding, you've still got to earn that end result where if people stand up and they're, they're ecstatic when they're, you know, we, especially now when people, the average age is about 70 in the audience to see people getting up and dancing at the end at 70 years old, it's, it's like a miracle. You know, you see people wobbling in, you know, on their stick, you know, and the next minute the sticks are in the air at the end and they're doing the best to dance along and groove along. That is. I'm and, cured. And I'm having, cured. I'm cured. I'm cured. I'm here. Praise the Lord. You know, so that kind of moment and, and Bob's meant to come down to from the back of the drums, he'll come up to me at the end and, you know, Many times, Birmingham, I don't know, always sticks in my mind, but because Birmingham's that kind of surrounding, the symphony, you're surrounded by people hanging over the balconies. Oh. He just takes a moment, he goes, Look at that, look at that. And they're all applauding. And he used to whisper, I mean, look at that. He said, That's what we do it for. That's our reward, you know. Yeah. And he believes that. And it's, it's true. It's a truism. You can't, you cannot buy that. You could, you could get 1,500 people in a room and you give them all 50 quid and you say, I'm going to sing this song. And at the end of it, I want you to stand up and go, Yeah, Pete, that was brilliant. <laughs> But that's not going to work because you oh. haven't earned it. You can give them fifty quid and they'll do it, but yeah. it's not really the same, is it? it but when you get that, when you get that, that, again, that's what they do it for. That drug, that kind of, mm. yeah. Tell me I'm great, you know. Show me, you know, well, yeah. And you come off and you think, yeah, oh, that was great. Uh, you know, that's that's part and parcel of entertaining people. Um, sure. Creating music's one thing. Entertaining people and doing it live is is a different sort of angle. You know, some people love to be in the studio and don't want to go out of the studio, mm. uh, but some people are addicted to that live thing. Cliff's addicted to that. You know, he's, he's addi definitely addicted to that. He can't stop, you know. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, just briefly tell me about your work on, on stage in the theatre. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I guess briefly. I was, how long have we got? You know, theatre is something that um, – this is a long story. I, I, you're not going to be able to get all this in. Uh, the long story theatre happened because I'd – been um in joseph uh and then i ended up writing a, a musical for bill um was that the first thing i did yes it was i ended up writing this musical um robin prince of sherwood which for me was one of the best times of my life it was simply a magical time we it was Henry Metcalf, the choreographer, that we used to have a curry with every week. And um, he came to me and he said, Bill's looking for somebody to write 
it was actually to write another Joseph because Joseph at that time has been taken off him. I think Andrew Lubbock was bringing him to the West End for whatever reason. I'm not I'm not sure the politics, but he, Bill was pretty cross about it, and uh, he wanted to write another Joseph. So I thought that was a bit of a mad idea, actually. And but we said, yeah, all right. Well, I'll go. I've just met a friend of mine, Rick Fenn. He was at the Chapman Tennessee. So I said, I'll go and write a song with him. We'll see how we get on. So I went to see Rick. I said, Do you fancy having a bash at this? And he said, Yeah, okay. So we wrote a song called. I believe in my dreams, which was um, a song that was going to take part. You know, was it close every door to me? So we thought we'd start with the main ballad. So we wrote this song called "I Believe in My Dreams." Uh, we wrote it in an afternoon, bashed it off. I thought it sounded great, and Bill thought it was amazing. And he, he got he got drawn. He said, "I want you to write. Um, I want you to write uh, some comedy, and I want you to write the opening of it." So we wrote. Um, Jacob and Sons, which we, we did a whole opening for. And we wrote the bit where the, uh, they sort of threw him, what did they do? They, something about the sheep and the, the colt and they got jealous. Did they throw him in a pit or something? I can't think, I can't remember what they did. But anyway, we wrote we wrote these other two pieces. He said, right, I want you to write Joseph. And we thought, okay, so we, well, it was great. You're getting the backing from the producer, so you know whatever you're going to do is going to be listened to. You haven't got to go through some of this. We started that after about 20 minutes of writing, not 20 minutes of writing, but 20 minutes worth of music. It took us a few weeks. I think he realised that it wasn't such a great idea to do a copy of something that's already done. <laughs> so he said to us, he said, right, he said, forget forget Joseph, we're going to get into trouble with that. He said, turn it into Robin, because Robin was very popular at the time. He said, turn it into Robin, Prince of Sherwood. And we went, well, we've just written 20 minutes, 20 minutes of like loads of lyrics. So it was all a something thing. You know, I thought, oh my God. So we, but we did, we did. And we ended up writing Robin and it took us nine months to write and record. Uh, and it was just me and Rick writing and recording. I was doing all the voices, he was doing all the playing and we just had the best time we did. And then it went on, it went on around, it started at Leatherhead and everybody went mad. They thought it was amazing. The pit, the place was up in over on the, the reviews were great. And we went on a, we did a British tour and everybody's going, this is amazing. It's brilliant. Fine. This is good. This is, this is fantastic. And Bill said, oh, you better start writing your next one. This is going to be massive. It's going to be absolutely huge. <laughs> and we're all of course elated, you know, really elated about this. And everybody's treating us really nicely because I think we're going to be really famous. And that. But after, I remember him phoning up and he said, we're going to take it into the West End. And I went, what? Because it was just designed as a, as a tour musical for families you know and oh. it was serving its purpose it was a very simple set uh, it wasn't very expensive to go and see there was no big flying helicopters there's nothing no big special stage set it's very spoofy it's very Monty Python-esque it's a bit daft you know I thought this is this is this is madness you know he said no it's but it's gonna be fine you know it'd be fine and um this is when it would come into coming back to bring it into the West End and the sheriff who was who was was it it was, oh, you must forgive me. Warwick, Warwick Evans, he was fantastic. He was brilliant. Deciding not to go, he didn't want to do it. And they phoned me and they said, look, can you, do you think you could play the sheriff? I said, oh, you're kidding me. I'm, I'm not playing the sheriff. And, the, and Henry, the choreographer said to me, look, he said, um, he said, I think you'd be really good. I said, look, Henry, I said, I'd, I'd, this part of me, like to try it. I said, but I'll do an audition. I said, if you think I can do it after I've tried a bit, if you think I can do it, don't let me look an idiot. Don't let think, oh, that's the composer doing the doing the, the sheriff bit because he's rewrote it for himself, you know. <laughs> and I went to, I did the audition. He said, No, I think you'd you'd be able to do it. So I ended up I ended up being in it. And that's that's how I started going on that side of the stage doing theatre oh. kind of thing. Robin's another story where we got absolutely slammed in the West End, but I, I don't want to gloss over that because it was right. really painful. That was a really painful time uh, to, to have you cut down, it, your, your nine months' work cut down by two people that 
didn't really get it. And one of those people, Jack Tinker, who slammed it, uh, that when it was on tour the following year in Liverpool, he gave it the best review outside of London. So that, mm. that for me was always, mm. it, it, I'm still very angry and bitter. And I'm still dealing with people that contacting me for the music. You know, there's people, the kids now that were eight, seven or eight, have contacted me. Can I, can I get the music in it? Because on the tape, it's all disappeared. Mm. But I do have the original um, uh, recordings of what me and Rick did. So I just give it to them. I just give, give them people the music. And a few amateur companies doing it. And I listened to it the other day and it still sounds great to me. Fantastic. It still sounds great to me. Do you prefer Anyway, to, anyway. You, so from then, from then, Bill, after about two years, I think we were writing another musical for him at the time. And he phoned me up and said, said to me, uh, can you sing like Roy Orbison? And I said, uh, no. He said, no, but you can hit all the notes though, can't you? You can hit all the notes. I said, yeah, I can hit all the notes. I said, but I don't sing like Roy Orbison. He said, come and see me tomorrow. And I was walking the Cotswolds with my wife at the time. I said, but I'm, I'm, I, he said, you can't say no, you owe me too much money. Because I've probably lost him a load of money for Robbie. He probably invested a lot. And I was always writing a musical for him. So I couldn't really say no to this man, you know. And I do, I do love him dearly, but I didn't particularly want to give up my holiday. But he made it very clear that he, he desperately was in the right old mess and he needed to see me. So I went into, I went into um, Shaftesbury Avenue, walked up to Bill's office and he went, right. He said, uh, come with me, come around, around, the, around the corner to the, to the Piccadilly Theatre it was. And we went out to the Piccadilly Theatre, and at that time he had the Robeson story going on with Larry Branson. Larry Branson was, uh, and I remember seeing the opening night. He was like a, a Robeson impersonator from Canada. Who was he? Was brilliant, you know, great. He looked, looked exactly like and sounded very, very similar to, to Roy. But he'd gone. I think he'd, he'd done. Was doing about a million shows a week, and he blew up. I don't know what happened, but he, he decided to, or he couldn't carry on. So they needed somebody very, very quickly. So he, Bill took me around to the audition. So we get these people coming on stage and they're coming on and he, he, Bill's going to be, what, what do you think of him? Oh, he's got a great, good voice. You know, it doesn't sound like Robson. Well, I, I think he sounds pretty good. Now. He doesn't sound like Robson. So after three people, he turns to me and he says, he said, right, get up there and sing Only the Lonely. I said, I don't, I don't know Only the Lonely. I said, I know the song, but I've never sung it before. He said, well, learn it now. He said, it won't take you two minutes. So I went up onto the stage at the Piccadilly and the, the, the MD at the time was Keith Heyman, who was the MD for Robin. I knew Keith really well. And he was in hysterics. And he thought it was absolutely hilarious. Um, but he, taught, he, sh he showed me Only the Lonely. And I sort of sang the first verse up to the part where he goes with the falsetto bit. He said, that'd be enough. So I went in front of the microphone, we played it, I sang it. And then Bill comes up on stage and he said, he said, here, read this. He said, I'm, I'm your wife. He said, uh, that's, that's you there. And he said, uh, right, can you do an American accent? I said, I have no idea that I could do an American accent or not. And he, he sort of did, we did a bit of dialogue and I'm sort of like doing this, Cod American accent, and it, after about thirty seconds, he said to me, "Right," he said, "You're on on Saturday." And this was like <laughs> Monday or Tuesday. Thirty songs to learn with all the things, and and I'd I'd hair actually my hair was probably because this is lockdown now. It was a bit longer than this. It was wow. really long. He said, "You're gonna have to get your hair cut." I said, I'm not cutting me. I'm certainly not. I've done the black bob. You're like, what? You obviously dyed black. He said, we'll get you a wig then. And so, so I had to get a wig. So I had the wig fitting done. I learned all the songs and I was literally shoved on. And not on the Saturday. I think it was the, maybe the following. It took about a week to get on. And that, that experience was was uh, a fantastic experience, one that I'll never again ever forget. And the cast were very, very kind. They they, they uh, helped me along because I'd, I'd never acted before. And the, the people I was acting with, um, 
really helped me out. They gave me help and were very kind, considering, you know, somebody waltzes in from nowhere and, and takes the main job, you know, and you think, well, who the hell is this guy coming in and taking the job? The understudy didn't get it. And you you feel a bit bad walking in because I knew Bill and everything. But, you know, it was a very um, wonderful experience. But that was my main theatre experience. I told you it was a long story, didn't I? Fantastic, but well worth listening to. Peter, um, we have just about run out of time. <laughs> Um, it's, it's been fascinating listening to your life story on music stories and uh, thank you so much for talking to me it's been My brilliant pleasure. thank you so much thank you no problem Music Stories is a free podcast with no fees paid to contributors in the hope that it'll inspire and help others in the music industry get in touch if you have a music story to tell if you or your organisation would like a professional podcast series to reach your own audience, or if you'd like training so you can do it yourself, I can help. Go to TonyLloydRadio.com. Music